Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I lived in Philadelphia for five years and grew to really love that place and all of its surrounding suburbs. And one of my favorite landmarks is in Philadelphia. It's St. George's Church. It was made very famous because in 1778, uh, the session uh, voted to permit African Americans to be part of the congregation, but they included a major caveat in that decision, which was that they would have a very special worship time as over and opposed to the worship time of the white congregation. They would have to worship at 5 a.m. And that is satanic for a number of reasons, Um, 5 a.m. But there was this leader among them uh, named Richard Allen. He was a very well-studied man, and uh, um, he understood all about slavery and the dynamics of slavery and the dynamics of oppression and racism. Uh, And this very learned man said, well, that's really not biblical. So we have to go. And they left and actually started a Christian tradition that we know as uh, the American Methodist Episcopal Church. There's a lot of them, especially in the South, AME churches. And eventually, it's fascinating, St. George's Church, years and years later, came around and and revised their earlier decision uh, in which they would then have an integrated congregation. And above the communion table on the stone archway, they had etched in that stone two words, no partiality, no partiality at the Lord's table. It's very good. Well, we're in James chapter two, and I just want to walk us through one verse of this passage. That is verse one, because I think if we understand verse one, we'll have the needful interpretive grids to understand the rest of the passage. And this is verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, I'm just going to break it apart and we understand all the parts. He begins by calling them family, siblings, my brothers, my brothers. So James is saying, from my perspective, and remember, he's the expert, yeah? I mean, he's writing to people who don't know as much as he does but he's calling them siblings. You're my brothers, you're my sisters. Um, And what's fascinating about that designation, not only is it used all over the New Testament, uh, and that's interesting, different authors use it, but what's fascinating about it is James is labeling church people brothers who are in fact not brothers, yeah? I mean, these are people within the same congregation, but most of them don't share the same last name, you know. Many of them are are not connected in any way socially. Uh, They don't have the same DNA, and nevertheless, he calls them all brothers. Why? Because he's trying to unify, through language, unify a very diverse group of people. He's trying to say to people who grew up in different uh, um, economic straits, and who have different 
perhaps racial backgrounds, that they're all connected by a new sense of being a sibling. Uh, because siblings, family, uh, is supposed to care for one another, right? When you have a brother or a sister, they're supposed to have your back, and you're supposed to have their back. And when they don't, there's something aberrant about that family system. Uh, the sense is, look, we all derive from the same womb, so we should, we should be connected in some sense. And so James is saying we've all derived from the same spiritual womb, and so we ought to have this bond for one another. And as people who are bonded, as siblings in Christ through faith and baptism, um, James is now going to coach us in terms of healthy family behavior. By the way, all uh, families have household codes. You wouldn't be able to do anything unless you had a basic household code about how things were supposed to run. Now, some people have too few rules, some people have too many. I'll tell you one rule of my household that I'm like insistent upon. Uh, actually, there are a lot of them, but here's one. Here's one, and I think it's really good. This is my refrain to my girls. We don't raise mean girls in this house. We don't raise mean girls in this house, not just because of the movie, Mean Girls, um, but, but, and I've seen it and got scared uh, of having teenagers. <laughs> But, but, the thought is, I don't want them to learn to bully each other. Like, you don't get your way through bullying somebody into submission, because that's a very evil thing to do, and we don't want to do that with each other, because we're family, and we don't want to do that outside this house, because we have brothers and sisters who are not our blood kin, right? Yeah. So, but you have your own, you have your own. But James is trying to school them in this new family code. You are now brothers, your sisters, your family under God, and that means something rather radical, that the aristocrat who has four homes and the gas station attendant who drinks like monster energy drinks all day long are siblings in the Lord, that you actually deep down are the same. And so I need you to operate on that basis. So he calls them brothers, and then he tells these brothers the family code, have no partiality have no partiality. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, partiality means unjust preference. Unjust preference. And I had to qualify it because we are called as people to have partiality in some things, right? We're to pr prefer wisdom over stupidity, for example, right? But that is a just and right preference, not an unjust preference, right? What James is here condemning is an unjust preference, a preference that idolizes power and wealth while diminishing the humanity of those who lack power and wealth. But partiality seems as ingrained in us as possible because of our fallen condition. Our hearts tend to be tribalistically oriented. Our affections are skewed in that way. And so very often, um, we, we find that our default setting is to have some degree of unjust preference. Uh, I was asking about it this week. I was wondering where people saw unjust preference, and I got a variety of answers. And somebody told me, Ethan, it's the holidays. It's always the holidays. And I'm like, what do you mean? It's Christmas. They're lights. It's nice. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Thanksgiving. At Thanksgiving, that's the holiday in which we all get an updated list from everyone in our family of whom we ought to love or hate, right? They were talking about the political realm. Here are the people to love this year. Here are the people to hate this year, right? And we associate with the good people, but not with the bad people, 
For other people, it is uh, ideological um, partiality. I've, I've heard this too this year. You may know the statistic. I think it's funny and horrific at the same time. 40% of Republican parents and 40% of, of Democrat parents would be upset if their child grew up to date somebody who belonged to the opposite party. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but 40% is almost half. And that's scary to me that they care that much. Um, for other people, what has to do with the ro a romantic partner? Haven't you ever gotten like hooked on somebody whom you believed was superior to you, and that's why you dated them in the first place because they would give you like a, a certain sense of inner credibility or legitimacy, but you, after started dating them, realized that they were not in fact the like embodiment of the eschaton and were like a deeply troubled person, nay, a little psychotic, and yet you would do anything to keep them with you. Right? Bad romance. Bad romance. Um, or maybe, and one of you said this last night, and I thought it was profound. Profound. You said, look, I was bullied a lot in high school by very vicious people. And so I developed a partiality for intellectuals. And I finally found a way that I could be superior to everybody else. So I became a very well-read intellectual. And then I realized in my late 20s that I became the bully too. I just didn't use my fists anymore. I just used argumentation instead. Right? But that was his preference. Well, James is dealing with a congregation that has the virus of economic partiality. So they had this issue in what was called the assembly, probably the assembly of believers in worship. And, and we have to understand where James's audience is coming from. Remember, this is a whole new way of living. Before Christianity, and before they really understood Jesus, there was no connection whatsoever between rich and poor. They lived in different zip codes. They had no reason to gather unless the one, the wealthy, owned the other, you know, right? The debtor slaves. That was the only connection they would have. And now they've all gathered as brothers and sisters in the same room, all equal before God, and they're learning how to live that out. And it's complicated. And so you have this bizarre thing that occurs, but an understandable thing that occurs, where the poor are drawn to the wealthy and want to show the wealthy special deference. Special deference, right? People have always, though, been drawn to wealth. Why? Because wealth is power. Power to have diminished temporary suffering. Power to have a sensorial superiority. Power to have influence and so forth. And some of the poor within James' churches were attracted to that kind of economic strength. Maybe the thought was, there could be positive benefits for us if we linger around these people. Uh, so I have a, a friend who was uh, quite wealthy and grew up at least part of her life in Ireland. And uh, her mother was a very, very famous American painter who had more mo enough money to make Solomon blush. And she was over in Ireland trying to just let her hair down. So she would go to the local Catholic church for bingo night. And if you've never experienced that, I commend it fully. So anyway, so she's there playing bingo and everybody wants to saddle up to Patricia and sit right next to Patricia because they wanted to see her jewelry, because they wanted to see her clothing, and because they believed they would have better luck in winning bingo if they sat next to the rich lady, right? Uh, so there would be some sort of mystical influence of wealth. 
Well, lots of people are attracted to wealth for a variety of reasons. Uh, but the poor people in James' congregation are showing special preference to the rich. And James, at the end of our passage, uh, talks about how stupid that is. Because don't you realize it's the rich people who are putting you all in jail? Like, what are you doing kissing up to these people? Uh, and he was likely referring to debtor's prison. Because when you ran out of money back then, well, there was an option. They could, the wealthy could throw you into prison until you paid the debt. Uh, and so lots of uh, kissing up is going on, lots of deference, lots of um, partiality toward um, the wealthy. But James says that this kind of partiality is a vile thing, a vile thing. Why? Because he was in touch with Genesis chapter 1. Like he knew his Bible exceptionally well. And what have we learned in Genesis chapter 1 that is uniquely taught in Genesis and nowhere else in the ancient world? It's an insight of sheer genius that lives with us still. It is that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, you may say, Ethan, that's white noise. We all know that. Not interesting. It's incredibly interesting. And here's why. Because within the ancient world, it was quite true that certain cultures believed that certain human beings were avatars of the heavens. That the heavens were localized sometimes in certain people. Very often, aristocrats, priests, and kings. And if you were one of those people and you were a male, then you had, in some sense, the imprint of the heavens. But outside that, you were just another brick in the wall, yeah? Well, then Judaism comes along with its revelatory insight that it's everybody. It's not just men. It's men and women. It's not just wealthy people. It's broke people. It's not just the king. In essence, the ontology of the king and the ontology of the homeless woman are exactly the same made in the image and likeness of God, they both reflect fractals of the heavens. And that was a unique insight that gave the whole world dignity, that gave a sense of sacredness. And by the way, our whole legal system is predicated on that idea of the intrinsic value and worth that is God-given in every single person you meet, whether you love them or despise them, whether they're broke or they're incredibly wealthy. They're all ontologically the same. And yet, human beings have trouble with that insight, at least embodying that principle as they engage with one another. To quote Bill Maher, that great scholar, um, he is very funny at times. Bill Maher says, human beings are not very good people. <laughs> uh, so it's, I thought that was very funny. You didn't, I guess, but human beings are not very good people. Thank you for the pity laugh. Um, in other words, it is very easy, especially when you're angry, uh, it is very easy to forget our image of godness. But James says, show no partiality. But then he deepens the family code, deepens the point. My brother, show no partiality. Here's his reasoning. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He gets theological. Notice James doesn't say, have no partiality because it's just not nice to be partial. Or it creates inequity. No, he connects it to the heavens. He connects it to the divine design. He connects it to the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, I have to tell you, the name Jesus is only mentioned two times in James' epistle, in the intro and right here. And that's it. Now, James 
reflects the teachings of Jesus all the time, sort of invokes the general ideas of Jesus. Nevertheless, he's only mentioned twice. But James invokes the sacred name in this passage that he obliterates partiality. Because whatever Jesus was and is, he embodies the opposite of partiality. He is the great impartial man, radically so. Jesus was uniquely unmoved by the glittering images that grab our attention because he was driven by something deeper. He was driven by this indiscriminate love that I would question. I would say, Jesus, where are your boundaries, right? But Jesus had a very wide audience and gave them the same kind of attention and love, right? He had the rich young ruler, which we read about today, and he dealt with a leper colonies and a wealthy centurion and militia zealots and conflicted clergy and tax collectors and widows who threw pennies in offering plates. But in every social context and in every single relationship, what was so fascinating about Jesus is that Jesus was always Jesus. He didn't have to contour his personality differently in every social situation to get the best result for him personally. Instead, Jesus was just always Jesus, no matter where he went. He always offered this steady focus, this humanizing glance, this attentive kind of love. For anybody who wanted him, he showed up, and he was always Jesus, unmoved by the partialist impulse. And we see this especially at the cross, right? Jesus... His ultimate demonstration of our equality was the fact that he perished for us. Because the Bible links all of us together in fallenness. When Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all defined by need. And then Jesus gives his life for the fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, right? And that's why Paul can conclude with this great word of redeeming unity that there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that all are one in Christ Jesus. And James would add a category to that, neither rich nor poor, that none of them, none of those groups are excised from redemption because the rich and the poor have the same crisis, whether they realize it or not. So Jesus embodied impartiality in his life and showed that impartiality in his death and the effects of his death. Now, I also want you to notice in this passage that James employs some rather lofty titles for Jesus. He doesn't just call him Jesus. He calls him the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord of glory. By the way, the Lord of glory is an Old Testament label for God, the King of glory or the Lord of glory. Now it's applied to Jesus. James knows what he's doing. He applies the divine name to Jesus. It's very deliberate that James here is highlighting Jesus' loftiness and his superiority. Because his church or churches are obsessed with lesser wealth. Lesser wealth. James' churches were gravitationally drawn to splendor. And they tended to put down or ignore those who lacked it. And James sees this as not only a crisis of the church's behavior, but a crisis of the church's faith. Why? Because if you have a church assembly... It is designed to focus upon and worship the Lord of glory who died for all. But you are instead emotionally attached and distracted by the rich and powerful, hoping for a little upward mobility for yourself. You are actually in worship, ignoring the person that you're there to worship because you're too distracted by the person who's sitting near you. You're too distracted by the person that you deem to be wealthy and powerful. 
you're focusing on the aristocrat instead of the king of kings. And so he's reminding his audience of who this Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory. He's the one that you're gathering for. The loftiest one in the room. And James' point is simply this. If we say that we believe in the Lord of glory, but our behavior functionally ignores him, that sends a theological message. Namely, that we might not believe as deeply as we claim in the Lord of glory because we are using God and God's house to serve our own ego, to show partiality, hoping that it reflects well on us or serves us in some way. Friends, more starkly, the practice of partiality within our Christian ranks, uh, that is, in James' case, kissing up to the rich and diminishing the dignity of the poor, communicates an evil faith, an evil faith that is the antithesis of Christianity, And this dark orthodoxy of partiality can be translated this way. If we engage this way functionally, people could deduce, number one, we are not all created equally in the image of God because, as it turns out, some people seem more equal than others. And two, we are not equally in need of Jesus because those with flash, power, and wealth are not as lacking in the eyes of God, at least in the eyes of the church. And so that kind of partiality functionally preaches a heretical gospel. It disfigures the person and nature of Christ, at least in the perception of many. And that's why James, in chapter 2, and we'll get into this as the chapter rolls on, James 2, he tells us, don't tell me what you believe. I want you to show me what you believe. Like, back this thing up with some actions once in a while, right? Because otherwise, I'm going to deduce what you really believe through what you do. And what you really believe, shown through your actions, is very different than your confessionalism. They're just not simpatico. Well, friends, uh, that's where he's going. He's saying, you're all brothers, therefore rich and poor, you're all connected in Christ. Uh, You're all brothers. At the same time, uh, you ought to have no partiality. And you have no partiality because you believe in a Jesus who was impartial and who died for people in that impartial manner. So I'm going to land this for us, because in order to have no partiality with each other, we must have a particular partiality, but a partiality for Jesus. That is, we have to prefer, have a radical preference for the Lord of glory. And if we are attached to the Lord of glory, and we share in the life of the Lord of glory, he'll share his perspective with us, and that will change how we function. When we are attached to the highest power, the highest power has authority over various areas of our life and gives freedom in various areas of our life, including this whole matter of how we see one another and treat one another. So I want to close with this story. It's a true story. I have a friend who, for years, worked at All Saints Episcopal Church in Briarcliff Manor, which, if that sounds like a wealthy parish, it's because it's a wealthy parish. Ridiculously, audaciously wealthy, right? And the wealthiest member of that particular parish at the time was Brooke Astor. Some of you know that name. She was a very famous New York City socialite, uh, a millionaireess, who had a lot of influence over the high culture of New York City. Well, in 2007, when Brooke was dying, she gave my friend her own three-carat diamond ring. It was worth, let's say, an untold sum of money, like probably pressing $80,000, gave it to her as a little gift. Well, my friend 
proudly donned that ring and wore it everywhere, simply so she could get questions about it and then answer those questions, right? Uh, she, she, uh, it offered ample opportunities to name drop about Brooke and fanciness and how she was well-connected in high society. Well, later in life, uh, my friend was getting the interior of her house painted. She had to leave the house for about a week, and she hid that jewelry in a very cliched spot, namely in the sock drawer. Never, ever, ever hide your valuables in a sock drawer. It is a recipe for disaster, uh, as it was for my friend. Well, she found, when she returned home, that all of her jewelry was gone, including Brooke Astor's ring. She couldn't prove that the painters had in fact stolen the ring, but anyway, it was gone forever. Uh, in a reflection, she has written these words. While I loved Brooke's gift to me, and she gave it from a place of generous sincerity, I believe that I'm much better off without that three-carat diamond. For me, it represented a false salvation. That ring taught me that my value was based on my associations and my symbolism, whom I knew and what they gave me. These things would evidence my worth to the world. But that way of thinking and feeling never really helped me. Instead, it made me feel less human. What's more, I've learned that with Jesus Christ, I don't need to be flashy or well-connected or bear the burdens of being flashy or well-connected. Jesus could not care less what I wear on my fingers or what names I can drop at parties because Jesus, unlike almost everyone, never discriminates against me. So who on earth am I to discriminate against anyone else? What did she discover? She discovered, through a great loss, a partiality for Christ and the perspective of Christ, and that recasts everything. Yep. And church is a hard place. It always has been. There are all sorts of social dynamics that are difficult, sometimes that really chafe against our natures, right? That are hard for us to, to grapple with. You know, this place is filled with people that we're naturally drawn to, others that we want to kiss up to, and still others that we are naturally repelled by. But I encourage you, in the name of an all-loving uh, all and all-leveling Christ, uh, to actually move in a Christ-oriented direction. Namely, how about you invite a fringy person out to coffee sometime? Because you will discover things about them that blow your mind. Or I invite you to pray for the person who drives you absolutely crazy, because there are others in this room whom you drive absolutely crazy. Also, to ask God for the ability to see those whom you idolize as they are, namely, just people. Beautiful, tragic, flawed, weird people, just like you. So may a partiality, a growing sense of partiality for the Lord of glory, cause us to weep a little less over the loss of our diamonds, and may it give us the undiminishing wealth of the kingdom of God. Amen.